0: The sitting is open. The Court meets this morning to hear the State of Israel present its single round of oral argument on the request for the indication of provisional measures submitted by the Republic of South Africa on 29 December 2023. In the case concerning application of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in the Gaza Strip, South Africa versus Israel, I shall now that's what it sounded like a few days ago in The Hague, Netherlands, when the International Court of Justice began two days of hearings on South Africa's claim that Israel intended to commit genocide against the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. South Africa wants two things from the International Court of Justice: first, to issue an interim opinion, sort of like an injunction, that would get Israel to stop its military action in Gaza immediately, or at least scale it back. And then the whole question of genocide, yes or no, would be argued more fully later. Among other arguments, South Africa says Israel has called Gazans human animals and likened them to Israel's biblical enemy, the nation of Amalek, which God commanded the Jews to destroy for attacking the Israelites who fled Egypt. If you haven't heard or watched Israel's full three hours of oral arguments, I've put the link to the video in our show notes. On today's show, we'll speak with a Canadian legal expert, Tamara Cronus, who's worked in The Hague in the prosecution office at a genocide tribunal about what's at stake for Israel if they lose. But first, I want you to hear a bit of Israeli lawyer Tal Becker's opening remarks. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is What Jewish Canada Sounds Like for Wednesday, January 17, 2024. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. As promised, I'm going to play you a bit of Tal Becker's opening
1: statement right here. The key component of genocide, the intention to destroy a people in whole or in part, is totally lacking. What Israel seeks by operating in Gaza is not to destroy a people but to protect the people, its people, who are under attack on multiple fronts and to do so in accordance with the law even as it faces a heartless enemy determined to use that very commitment against it. As will be detailed by Council, Israel's lawful aims in Gaza have been clearly and repeatedly articulated by its Prime Minister, its Defence Minister and all members of the War Cabinet. As the Prime Minister reiterated yet again this week, Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the civilian population. Israel aims to ensure that Gaza can never again be used as a launch pad for terrorism. As the Prime Minister reaffirms, Israel seeks neither to permanently occupy Gaza or to displace its civilian population. It wants to create a better future for Israelis and Palestinians alike where both can live in peace, thrive and prosper and where the Palestinian people have all the power to govern themselves but not the capacity to threaten Israel. If there is a threat to that vision, if there is a humanitarian threat to the Palestinian civilians of Gaza, it stems primarily from the fact that they have lived under the control of a genocidal terrorist organization that has total disregard for their life and well-being. Israel is in a war of defense against Hamas, not against the Palestinian people. Madam President, members of the court, the Genocide Convention was a solemn promise made to the Jewish people and to all peoples of never again. The applicant, in effect, invites the court to betray that promise. To maintain the integrity of the Genocide Convention, to maintain its promise and the Court's own role as its guardian, it is respectfully submitted that the application and request should be dismissed for what they are – a libel designed to deny Israel the right to defend itself according to the law from the unprecedented terrorist onslaught it continues to face.
0: Well, Tamara Cronus is a human rights lawyer, former Conservative Party candidate in the last federal election in the Vancouver Island riding of Nanaimo Ladysmith. And apropos of the International Court of Justice hearings, Cronus knows the case law well because she worked at the International Criminal Tribunal looking into war crimes in the 1990s committed in the former Yugoslavia. And she joins me now to explain why Israel decided to pay attention to the International Court of Justice and what they need to do if they lose Thanks so much for having me, Ellen. Well, it's good to see you. Uh, we're trying to make some sense for our listeners. Could you just tell us, first of all, what is the International Court of Justice? You know, what what is it to set up to do? So the ICJ is one of the
2: international judicial bodies that exists in the world, and there are actually a whole bunch of them. The ICJ is the adjudicative body of the United Nations, and it was created after World War II. And it does two things. The first thing it does is it settles legal disputes that are submitted by states. And then the second thing it does is it gives advisory opinions on questions that are submitted to it by UN organizations and agencies. Now, some of the other institutions are the International Criminal Court that was um, created by the Rome Statute. And so the Rome Statute largely actually deals with Uh, individual incidents of violations of criminal international
0: criminal law against Mm -hmm. warlords and people who were in charge at the time. It's not for the actual country itself or the regime, right? A hundred percent. And where it came from,
2: I worked at the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia. And so what the ICC was intended to be is it was intended to be sort of a permanent court for dealing with individuals. So we're
0: wondering how Israel gets taken to or... Uh, accused of genocide at the International Court of Justice what is the procedure that has to happen for this to take place
2: it's it's very very formal and it, it's very prescribed but it is very similar to processes that we have in our own country so what happens is is the ICJ it doesn't they don't do the versus like there's not a complainant and a respondent This will be sort of South Africa slash Israel. And so South Africa lodged uh, an 84-page document. And what would have happened is is that the registrar of the ICJ would have delivered that document to Israel's Minister of Foreign Affairs. And so it's done at that level. Now, the Minister of Foreign Affairs doesn't appear. They appoint an agent, and then there are appearances. The court reserves a judgment, and then it delivers it uh, after some time. There are 15 judges who are elected by the U.N. General Assembly and the Security Council for nine year terms. But if a state finds itself in an appearance before the ICJ without a judge of their nationality, On the court itself, what they're allowed to do is to acquaint someone specially. So, uh, which is the way my old boss, Aaron Barak, uh, uh, got there. Years and years ago, I clerked um, at the Supreme Court of Israel and I clerked for Aaron Barak, who was the president at the time. So that's why Israel has
0: sent Aaron Barak to sit on that panel. Okay. And here there's a genocide statute or genocide law. Can you explain what? test to South African lawyers have to pass in order for the ICJ to say, yes, this was genocide. So the, the action's actually going to take place in two steps,
2: both a jurisdictional analysis and a what, what, what we would think of in, in Canada as the equivalent of an injunction. The first thing is, you know, how does South Africa, who's not a party to the conflict, Get the right to have standing to be able to be the 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 entity, the state entity that's driving this. And that comes out of the genocide convention and the definition of genocide itself. The genocide convention requires states to do three things. It requires them not to commit genocide. It obligates them to sort of stop, act to not be a bystander to genocide being committed somewhere else. And it uh, requires them to punish genocide. So the first time it got used in this bystander capacity was actually just a couple of years ago when I think it was Gambia brought an action against Myanmar for the alleged genocide um, against the Rohingya. Um, But it has been used a couple of times by states themselves Ukraine as a as a victim state brought in action. And so so just a bit of background about the genocide convention. It was, of course, adopted by the UN General Assembly in December of nineteen forty-eight in Paris. It was a direct response to the Holocaust. That's that's one of the reasons why this is so emotionally fraught for Israelis and for Jews around the world. This convention that was essentially created to protect us and out of our own suffering is now being weaponized against the state of Israel. And it is it's all kinds of hurtful and emotional and and triggering for Jews around the world.
0: Israel doesn't recognize the International Criminal Court, right? But they are fully participating in this one. Why? Why will they just say who cares and not show up? So the issue here is that Israel didn't sign the Rome statute.
2: So it would be hard to um, conclude that that the ICC has jurisdiction, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over Israel, but Israel is absolutely a party to the 1948 Genocide Convention. And the other other thing about the Genocide Convention is, is that it is actually considered to be part of sort of the core of international law. It's considered to be one of the basic... International laws. And so there's no question that we're party of the genocide convention. And so and there's also no question Israel is a member body of the United Nations. And so the ICJ does, in fact, have jurisdiction. It'd be very hard to argue that it didn't.
0: Right. But why don't they like you mentioned two things. You mentioned Myanmar with the Rohingyas and you mentioned Ukraine, Russia. And what did Russia and Myanmar do? Didn't they just ignore it anyway? And like the war's still going on and, the, the, you know, Myanmar hasn't done anything despite sanctions. They're like, we don't care.
2: I don't I don't need to tell you about the qualitative differences between Myanmar and Israel. Um, if this court decides against Israel and Israel continues its operations in Gaza, then the reputational damage both to Israel and to Jews, because the reality is, is that while people say that, you know, anti-Zionism is, is not anti-Semitism, our experiences and our feelings um, and our lived experiences of that are very different as Jews. If this court decides against Israel and Israel ignores it, we
0: are going to be in for a bit of a rough ride, I think. So you mentioned there's two steps. Can you walk us through what they're actually arguing for and what the court has to do going forward now with what they did on Thursday and Friday? And then what can be the longer term, depending on what the outcome of that is?
2: Yes. So what's going to happen is um, there's there's sort of preliminary arguments that are happening now. And they're establishing, number one, that South Africa has jurisdiction to bring the case. The precedent for this is the Myanmar case. It was in 2021 that, they, that the, the precedent was set that, that, number one, Gambia could bring the action. And number two, in 2021, the ICJ inc- imposed what are called provisional measures against Myanmar, which required the junta in Myanmar to direct its forces not to commit genocide and to preserve all relevant evidence. So what South Africa is aiming for in this first stage of the case is the same thing. Um, South Africa is looking for the court to declare... Israel needs to direct its forces to cease all operations in Gaza, and um, and and to preserve all relevant evidence for an actual genocide trial,
0: which will then take place. The, are the timelines on that, yeah. How much? I mean, could this be five years from now until that happens, or like what is usually the the timeline?
2: So Gambia brought its action in two thousand and nineteen. The provisional measures were imposed in 2021, so I think one of the other reasons. I mean, it's it's possible that Israel is hoping that the timeline will be long enough to allow them to accomplish what they want to accomplish in Gaza while complying with international law. If the court somehow manages to speed this up and bring a uh, bring provisional measures earlier, which they might be able to do because it's no longer the first. Time this is happening, it's it, then it, it could put more pressure on Israel faster. I would be shocked uh, if the ICJ ruled on this,
0: you know, in a couple of weeks. It's probably a timeline of months, so that's actually could play in Israel's favor. However, um, I want to go back to what you mentioned just a minute ago. There's the judges. Do we know the composition of where these judges come from and whether they are? friendly countries to Israel or not? Do you have the list? And I have to admit, I looked at the
2: list to see whether I knew any of the judges. I wanted to see whether there were any of the judges that were on the court at the ICTY when I was there. My experience of judges in general is that they're not sort of being closely watched by their countries to decide whether or not they're acting in their country's interests, but they do bring their own lived experiences and their own personal biases to it. I mean, there is a le- there is a Lebanese judge on the court and and frankly, depending on what his own personal experiences are, that could be for or against us.
0: I actually don't know. So the president is an American judge, Joan Donahue. The vice president is uh, from Russia. Then there's Slovakia, France, Morocco, Somalia, China, Uganda, India, Jamaica, Lebanon, Japan, Germany, Australia, and Brazil, plus Israel. So mm-hmm. like you said, a mixed bag. What is Israel's position? How do you defend yourself from
2: genocidal like acts? They will actually look at the definition of genocide because that's one of the things it's actually one of the things we haven't gotten to is that um, it's it's really been defined as an attempt to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. And it's by doing a number of different things. So you can kill members of the group and cause mentally or bodily harm to members of the group. You can deliberately inflict conditions of life calculated to bring out a a group's physical destruction. So absolutely, um, people are being killed in Gaza. But that is the hallmark of war. And international criminal law, in theory, doesn't actually judge a state or a person's actions by the outcome. They actually judge it by the intention and the calculations that were done beforehand. And so whether or not you've committed a violation of international law is actually decided in some ways before the first bullet is fired. And so Israel will make that case. They will say, look, yes, people die, but people die in war. You know, we have adhered to the provisions we have adhered to we have adhered to the principles of proportionality and discrimination and targeting only real military assets. We have
0: done everything we can to minimize civilian damages. You mentioned intent, South African side said that they quoted statements by the extreme right-wing people in Israel government and in media. You know, they're human animals. And this is uh, some uh, people have heard these quotes before after October 7th. So I wondered how dangerous those clearly documentable uh, statements will hurt israel's side so i think the i think the issue
2: here is that netanyahu let's let's separate i want to separate netanyahu from some of the harder right liners because i mean he no said country. things too he's talked about amalek right which is a very but, powerful image but he's been very clear that it's hamas and so hamas is not all gazans um and so what israel will argue is that netanyahu is referring to hamas he is not referring to anyone beyond Hamas and that that would restrict his comments to combatants and there is no question that under international law you can kill a combatant when it comes to the state uh, proving that the state has an intent to commit genocide that is i mean it's a very high threshold it's it's a it's actually a, a, it's an enhanced intent it's a dolus specialis it is a special intent that is a key element of the crime of genocide it is hard to prove and the state has to have an organized plan of or policy.
0: You need the Bonassi conference, you need Mein Kampf, you need the final solution documents, you need all that stuff.
2: Yeah, which will be what we're arguing. Now, we were caught by surprise on October 7th, but the idea that Israel suddenly developed a genocidal intent, like they, they, it is an organized army, but it is an army that is doing its best to respect the international laws of war, including the laws of genocide. And
0: so how you get to a special intent there, it's hard. One last thing. So in practical terms, uh, Tamara, so let's say Israel loses. They give them a timeline, like by 0800 hours on the date, everything has to stop. Or it's just a suggestion of when, like who decides? They may impose a timeline, but my my guess is that it, it will be immediate. Okay. And so what actually can happen then? There's no, th- the International Court of Justice does not have like a NATO army to go in there and like supervise that Israel's actually stopped. Do they? No,
2: um, but there are lots of ways to send troops to a region. What kind of escalation that would cause? And, you know, the, we're, we're seeing all kinds of concerns about this conflict escalating into a global conflict. And uh, what an ICJ judgment would do to precipitate that if hostilities are still ongoing is, you know, anybody's guess. And so because Israel isn't Myanmar and because of its international relationships and its role in the world, uh, a, a decision by the ICJ against Israel will be uh, it'll be something. I just don't understand so how this actually practically works. I, I think that that there will be great diplomatic pressure brought to bear on Israel. I think it would be hard for the U.S. to continue to stand behind Israel's military actions in Gaza. I think there would be enormous international and diplomatic pressure on Netanyahu, if he was still the prime minister of Israel at that time, to stop. The second thing is, is that because of the provisions of the Genocide Convention, which say that member states cannot stand by and allow other nations to commit genocide, you could see other nations decide to attack Israel. So, right now, the Houthis in Yemen are attacking international shipping routes in order like this might actually justify their actions. And you could see other states decide, um, uh, you yeah, know, I'm thinking of 1948 here. You could see other states decide to take it in their own hands to enforce a UN resolution, which would undoubtedly cause an escalation in this conflict. So that's a second possibility. A third possibility is you could see all kinds of sanctions against Israel. You could see international trade consequences um for for Israel and those could be very, very, very um costly. And I mean one of the things that people do not talk about right now very much is the co- the actual um fiscal cost of this war, the financial cost of this war to Israel, and it's in the it's 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 brutal. I do think that Israel has very good and very strong legal arguments and whether or not you think this is going to happen or how you think this is going to go may actually depend on what kind of faith you have in international institutions to do the right thing
0: okay well we'll leave it there for now and thank you so much for explaining all this to us here at the CJN daily and definitely we will be back uh, when we have some news on this file thanks so much for having me Mm -hmm. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality and customer care. By the way, this isn't the first time that the International Court of Justice has ruled on matters involving Israel and Palestine before. In 2004, it said construction of the security border wall separating Israel from the West Bank was illegal and frowned on building Israeli settlements there, but didn't rule on whether Israel was conducting an occupation in the West Bank. When I spoke to Tamara Cronus, Canada had not yet taken a public stance on these hearings. Canada waited until they'd wrapped up on Friday before saying anything. And as you know, their decision was a bit confusing. Prime Minister said Canada rejects the premise of the case. But the foreign minister said they'll abide by whatever the court rules. We spoke to Yara Sachs, the Liberal's Minister for Mental Health and Addiction. She spoke before the Canadian government's
3: official position about the whole case. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. We believe in the ICJ as a format to adjudicate fairly, and that is our fervent expectation that they do so. But I'll also say uh, going into this case and, and what what concerns me with it is that there is an abject refusal to acknowledge that Hamas in its charter and in its actions on October 7th and its statements subsequently since then has clearly stated its intent vis-a-vis Israel and and Israeli civilians i am confident that that position will be presented and 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 given given the consideration that it should that when you know in the world of social media people get very fast and loose with the term genocide and the truth is that it is a legal term that is laden with tremendous amounts of of responsibility and and culpability for those who who engage in it and uh, i know that the icj i'm confident that the icj will understand israel's position and its right to defend itself after the massacre and the horrific terrorist attack on october 7th um because the world also understands what happened that day